Trigger warning, the Resilience Project provides an open space for people to share their personal experiences. Some content in this podcast may include topics that you may find difficult. The listener's discretion is advised. Hello, friends. Welcome to Radical Resilience, a weekly show where I, Blair Kaplan Venables, have inspirational conversations with people who have survived life's most challenging times. We all have the ability to be resilient and bounce forward from a difficult experience. And these conversations prove just that. Get ready to dive into these life-changing moments while strengthening your resilience muscle and getting raw and real. Welcome back to another episode of Radical Resilience. It's me, Blair Kaplan Venables, and I'm here today with Nicole and Bobby. Nicole Doty is a Missouri-based philanthropist and co-founder and president of the Emmershear. Her experience as a peer counselor to women at Thrive in St. Louis, her training as a trauma-sensitive yoga instructor, and being a divine feminine healer has been an integral part of her path. She has tons of experience. Um, you know, she she's really special because this company she started came from a need. As an abuse survivor, she learned the hard way that the system to support women like her is broken, which is why she created the Emergeer, a unified network to provide multi-level services for those fleeing domestic violence. When she's not focused on elevating her not-for-profit, when she's not focused on moving the needle on her movement, you can find her spending time with her five beautiful children. And Bobby, Oh, Bobby, Bobby, I met on Clubhouse, which is a social media app. That's how we met Nicole. And you know what? I can't wait for you guys to listen to this episode because you're going to hear a bit more about that. But Bobby Kay is a Virginia-based philanthropist and co-founder, vice president, and treasurer. He's an ally in empowering women to flee toxic and abusive personal and professional relationships. He has done so much work with women and helping them elevate their lives and their careers. He has built his passion based on his experiences, including surviving abuse and working in a high stress environment, like at the Air Force Pentagon during September 11th terrorist attack. This is all what led him on this path to co-creating the Emergeer with Nicole. Over the last three years, he's been helping these women, helping women attain success and helping them balance their life's priorities. And he is truly such a gift. His expertise has been featured on this podcast. And you know what? I really hope you listen to their story and what they're building. If you are located in the USA or anywhere in the St. Louis area, I really want you to pay attention to help. Their biggest goal right now is raising funds to get their movement off the ground and to building strategic partnerships so that women who are fleeing an abusive situation, abusive relationships have the support that they need. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Bobby and Nicole. Hello. Hello. I was so this is their first interview together. And I am so honored to hold that space for the both of you. Um, I think what could be really good is like I just, you know, introduced you, but let's get to know each of you a little better. Like, let's talk about your story. Like, Nicole, what's your story? Like, how did you get to this moment in time? Well, Blair, first off, thank you so much for having us. It's such an honor. Um, it's so great that it's you as our first. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, just a little background about me. Um, I grew up in a very 
um, a sheltered background. I was homeschooled through high school. Um, and the world was very narrow in my upbringing. And there were a lot of things that I didn't know. Um, so that kind of worked to my disadvantage in, in my teenage years. Um, going into college, I made some really poor decisions with who I chose to hang out with. And um, my first remembered experience of domestic violence happened at the hands of someone who had, you know, had drugged me essentially. So that was really um, frightening and eye-opening. And what ended up happening is my parents decided to kind of put me back into the little box, into the little bubble that I had come from. And that didn't work because I finally knew that there was a lot that they weren't telling me. And so, um, you know, with that kind of damage, with that kind of pain and hurt and an inability to process, I left my parents' house and began making really, again, really poor choices. I feel like, (laughs) um, I, it was, there was a lot that came through in that time period, a lot of destruction, a lot of, um, just places where, um, I allowed myself to be hurt over and over just because of how naive I was just because I felt like I deserved it after, um, losing my virginity in a rape. Um, it had, that was like the big thing that I felt like growing up was the most important part of me. Most important piece of me was my virginity. I was raised in, um, purity culture and, um, wait until you're married and all of those kinds of things. So I felt like I'd lost all value and I treated myself and those around me as such. So, um, I wound up pregnant at 21, um, from the guy that I was dating at the time. And at that point it was kind of like a, uh, like, okay, how do I fix my wrongs here? Because, um, the church that I grew up with had a public called a public confession where they, um, held me accountable for having sex outside of marriage in front of everyone. And that was really, really difficult to, um, to stand in front of and accept, but I'm also really grateful that that happened because it opened my eyes to a lot of the, um, two-sidedness that, um, evangelical Christian, um, conservative, very like, um, sheltered environments can bring Mm -hmm. and how abuse tends to hide within those walls a lot. So, um, yeah, my, after that, um, I married the guy that got me pregnant. We had three more children. Uh, he was a police officer and, uh, I began seeing signs of maybe I didn't make the right choice pretty early on within my second pregnancy. I had, uh, an incident where he had, we were in an argument and he began chasing me and I didn't know what to do, but I ran 
uh, he chased me up off the bed and dragged me by my feet and like threw me onto the floor. And my very first thought at that moment was, oh no, I've hurt the baby. Cause at the time I was uh, seven months pregnant and I find it really interesting looking back how I took ownership for a lot of his choices of like immediately my thought was, oh no, I've hurt the baby completely disregarding that it was him that drug my feet mm-hmm. across the bed um, onto the floor. Um, so things escalated from there and there were different points where I feared for my life and feared for the lives of my children. And um, I, but I, at the same time, I wasn't really able to process it because I had not done any trauma therapies for the things that had happened previously. So I felt like a lot of it was <laughs> again, held under my cultural belief system that the marriage needed to stay intact above all else, like screw the safety. Like you have, I have to make something work. It has to be, um, it ha- it's sacred. I can't give this up or else it's going to be, um, the public humiliation all over again. So I stayed within the marriage and really did my best to be the perfect wife, to be the perfect mother and in absorbing all of that pain um, and being in such an uncontrolled uh, environment, there was only one thing I could control at that time. And that was what I ate or in my case, what I didn't eat. So I developed a pretty, um, extreme eating disorder to the point where I wasn't staying conscious anymore. (laughs) Um, and no one could figure out, I wasn't able to voice my pain to anyone. I wasn't able to voice what I was doing to anyone. I, I kept it very hidden. And so after going through, you know, the medical profession, rigmarole and trying to, um, trying to figure out why I was always collapsing, Um, I found a doctor who was actually the first person, he was a chiropractor and he was the first person I ever met to actually go to bat for me. And because I felt so safe with him, he was the first person I admitted Sam's abuse to. He was the one who helped me get into treatment. And from that point, things started falling into place. I began, um, doing a lot of inner work and healing and trauma therapy alongside my, uh, treatment for the eating disorder and things began coming to the surface of what he was doing and how unsafe the home environment was. So, um, eventually I was able and strong enough to leave and I'm grateful for that and for the safety of my children, but it was a long drawn out process to be sure. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm sorry you went through all that. And there's lots to unpack there. Um, you know, a lot of what you went through, it's a lifelong journey of healing. Mm-hmm. And the journey that you're on has brought you to here, to this moment, to your organization. And um, I know when, you know, I knew Bobby before I met you, and we're going to get into Bobby's story soon, Bobby Kay. Um, And I love that I met Bobby on Clubhouse and that you met Bobby on Clubhouse. Yes. (laughs) Clubhouse still around. I don't know. But I I think what's, what's really special is that 
I'm someone who's turning my pain into purpose. And we are experiencing that right now in this podcast. And that is what you are doing. Um, and Bobby, when I first met him, I mean, when he first started sharing this project, he explained to me a little bit more about the night you left and that you, you fled for safety. Can we talk about what happened the night you left your abusive situation? Um, and because I'd, I'd like the listeners to understand, because it wasn't just as simple as you leaving. Because like, once you leave, where do you go? What do you do? And I want to talk about your specific experience. Yeah. So my specific experience, I had tried to leave a couple of times and being a police officer, he was also in the military and his dad was a lawyer. So there were a lot of threats made that if I left, I would never see my children again. That if I called the cops, he would, um, he knew exactly what to say to get them to uh, just dismiss everything. Um, He also said that, you know, if I called the cops, the chances of the people responding were his buddies because we actually lived in the district within which he worked. And I knew that to be true. So I stayed quiet for a very, very long time. And um, when I finally got the courage to leave after um, an intensive process of healing myself and realizing that I wanted better and beginning to make myself bigger <laughs> when I was talking to him, um, I finally got the courage to leave. And it wasn't as it wasn't as simple as just getting the kids in the car with a couple of belongings and leaving. When he found out that I left, he immediately like was calling me and tracking me. Um, he knew where all of my friends lived. He knew where all my family lived. I didn't have anyone that I felt safe going to. Uh, I also couldn't go to any of the shelters in the area because as a police officer, he knew where those were. And I was actually, I remember the agency that I was working with that I had like opened up to trying to get help. Um, They were like, you know, like, we don't know what you should do. (laughs) Like, just don't go anywhere. Like, don't go to any of the places that he might know, which happened to be everywhere within our, within our city. Um, so there was, I finally found a place that I thought was far enough away that maybe he wouldn't check there. And when I walked in, um, it, again, it had been a very stressful day. He was threatening to kill me. He was threatening to kill himself, the children, like, and he had access to weapons. Like there was no reason for me not to believe him. And so I walked in and I tried to explain what is going on. And I needed shelter for the night until I figured out what to do. Um, because what had happened is I I had left without much of a plan in place yet because it had escalated a lot faster than I had expected. Um, they unfortunately were full and, and turned me away. And I will never to this day forget that feeling of I truly have no one that I can turn to. I don't know what to do. I'm in fight or flight. I have children. Like it really felt like the only option at that moment was to go back to him and like hope that he was happy enough with us returning that something drastic didn't happen. 
So um, thankfully, with a lot of care from other people, I was able to stay away for a bit of time in a place that he didn't know um, to allow things to begin the process of um, divorce and and rebuilding our lives. But it was it was a very eye opening moment for me of the terror that can happen within domestic violent relationships. Yeah. Whoa. Thank you. Thank you. And I think this is a really important conversation. Like you were in a situation where you had nowhere to go and you found one, the one place you could go and they turned you away. Yeah. And how often, like, think, like, how often does that happen? Right. And it's just telling us that there are not enough beds. There's not enough safe places. And you're really making a difference. And, you know, your story is one of, unfortunately, familiarity to a lot of women. Mm. I myself, like I don't have kids, but I was in an abusive relationship and I ended up homeless for three weeks and it was really scary. I didn't think to go to a shelter. I called my mom and we had a conversation that led me to believe that I didn't feel safe enough to let anyone else know how bad my situation was. And I just couch surfed and stayed on random people's like, you know, couches. And I got an apartment three weeks later and I, you know, I, you know, I've grown a lot. And in hindsight, like I probably should have went to a shelter or like been more honest with my friends or family, but it's also this level of embarrassment, right? Like, how did I get here? There's a lot of shame mm-hmm. that entangles itself both. I mean, not only from the person experiencing the violence, but I think truly with, with the perpetrators as well, you know, there's, there's a yo-yo cycle that happens and um, with the, the loved ones that I've had that have experienced this, so many of them have said, like, I wanted to believe the best in this person. Like right. I wanted, I didn't want to believe that a person that I had chosen to marry or be in a relationship with or keep as a friend or whatever the case may be would do this. Like, so there is, yeah, I'm so yeah. glad you brought that up because that, that alone, I think is one of the most crippling aspects of, um, of staying silent. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. So let's keep everything you just shared in mind. And now Bobby, Bobby K. Hi. Hi. I want to talk about you and your involvement because I've, I've known you longer than I've known Nicole. And you've actually, we, you were one of my clients while my mom died and you were with me back when you were known as Robert. I, I was Robert. Well, I've always been Robert, but I was, I went by Rob for yeah. my life and, and that's part of my story. Yeah. And we, you know, we go way back. We both went through some unravelings together yeah. and I want to talk about now your story and how we got to where we are today with you. Okay. Uh, and again, to echo Nicole's gratitude, thank you for having us um, and and allowing us to to share this message. Um, So I grew up in suburban Philadelphia. Um, 
my mother was, uh, by all intents, a single mother for most of that time. She was 18 years old when I was born. My father was 17. Um, in the early 70s, um, her father was on the, you know, the local town government. And so, of course, it was a source of shame for a daughter of his to end up uh, pregnant and such. So, um, you know, she was forced to leave the house. We were both forced to leave the house. We lived with my father's uh, parents for a while. Um, she's a very strong woman and I'm going to give her a lot of credit for that. Um, you know, I've got children that age now and I, I, you know, I can't imagine those children raising children that, uh, at this point, but, um, you know, my mother persevered. Um, we did a lot of, of that living on our own, uh, lots of public assistance, things like that. Um, and, she tried to make a life for herself um, while I was still very young, where I went to school, got a degree, found a job. Um, we, you know, the, the hardest part of my early childhood was how many times we had to change residences um, in my lifetime. And I just added it up um, recently. I've lived in over two dozen places in just under 50 years. So on average, I'm moving every two years or so. Things are that unstable across my life. Um, so, you know, there's lessons you could take from that. Um, that, that what matters in life is really the people. Um, your foundation is grounded in, in relationships and, um, you know, picking good ones is important, of course, uh, but you've got to have that good relationship with yourself to be able to get through all of that. Um, so the, one of the more difficult points in my childhood, my mother had um, married her second husband. He fell into some drug problems. And when he was um, on his drug highs, he would get very physically abusive. And I, through my teenage years, um, you know, became a target. Um, that was something that was was quite difficult. Um, I was Bobby K growing up. That's part of the story, right? That's uh, that uh, I'd mentioned. Um, what I decided that I needed to do for myself in my mid-teen years was to become a little bit more tougher to stand up to that. Um, so I, in addition to adding weight, um, also changed my persona. I changed, I put away the Bobby K personality. Basically I had to defend. Him. And so I adopted a persona named Rob, which was a, in my mind, a more tougher version of Bobby, uh, who had the emotional strength to stand up to him. And Bobby had less of a, uh, willingness to protect himself. Rob was very much in his, defensiveness and even at times, certain points aggressive, um, you know, that's that persona ended up sticking with me through life. And it was an inadvertent thing. It happened. Um, it happened one day at my job. There happened to be three Roberts working that day. And um, it was a union shop. I was the newest person there. So when the customer service person called Robert to come to the front desk and three of us showed up, she decided we all needed different names. Um, so Bob stayed Bob. Bobby was the choice of the second person. Um, so I couldn't have that one if I wanted it. So I chose Rob and I felt like that was a good time to make a life transformation. I was working at a new place with new people and it was time to adopt that persona anyway. Uh, turns out I ended up going to college with a lot of those people. So my high school name of Bobby uh, was sort of lost and I became Rob all the way through college. I ended up working with some of the people I went to college with. So I became Rob in my professional career. My wife uh, that I met at college, now ex-wife, uh, also knew me as Rob. My kids know me as Rob. Everywhere in my life, I've been Rob ever since. And I carried that persona of Rob with me that whole time. Um, that said, 
in the marriage that I was in for uh, 15 years. We were together 21 years in total, um, counting the time that we dated. You know, you have your struggles in marriage. Um, there's things that come up. Sometimes there, there are things that you can't solve. But I became more of a victim of the blame for the things that were out of my control. Um, things related to school district rezonings and our kids not going to the school across the street anymore somehow became my fault. Um, I didn't make enough money, right? So what, what ended up happening was I was being told all the ways that I was not meeting my wife's needs on a day-to-day basis and how that made me not only a poor husband, but also a um, an angry father when I was, of course, responding emotionally to what was being said to me. Um, so I would characterize, uh, most of what I had to endure as more, um, emotional, um, psychological. It was, it was more of a daily, um, accounting of all of the ways that I was failing my family and, you know, the toughest person as emotionally tough as you can be that wears on you over time. Um, it drove me to be more successful professionally when you hear your you know, you're not making enough money, you're not successful enough, you put your energy into doing that. If you want to be a good husband, if you want to be a good father, maybe that's the way, maybe she's right. You start to buy the story. Um, Ultimately, it didn't matter how successful I became at work. Um, It was still never enough. The more money I made, the more money we spent um, trying to satisfy needs for somebody that um, I, I could not satisfy. I could not make her happy. Um, and, and I was too emotionally immature at the time to realize that wasn't my responsibility, right? Um, I needed to be happy within myself. Um, unfortunately I'd gotten to the point where I was on the edge of suicide. I had an attempt planned and I was in a place where I was intending to carry it out when the only thing I can characterize as spiritual intervention intervened, right? God literally reached down and gave me a message and said, we've got better things in mind for you. This has all been experienced. This is all growth. Um, you're going to shift your direction. We're going to take all this and do something good with it. Exactly what you mentioned before. Um, and I've been on a path of, you know, reshifted life direction ever since. Um, I would say probably the hardest parts of the next, what's been now 11 years was, deciding that I had to leave that relationship, right? So a lot of the same things that that you and Nicole have have already talked about. Um, Very difficult to be a man in that situation, as you can imagine. Um, Society doesn't want to listen to the idea that a man can be the victim of abuse in a relationship. Um, When something happens, it's, you know, generally the man that's looked at as as perpetrating um, the incident. Um, Telling telling her that I was leaving the marriage, telling her that I was ending the marriage. One of the hardest things that I had to go through because of the ways the laws are written in my state is I had to stay in the house for almost a year after I told her I was leaving. I had no other means to leave. I had no way to move myself into a place where I wasn't subject to that emotional abuse on a daily basis. Um, If I did leave the house, I was told that I was basically abandoning my family. And as such, I would lose rights to custody to my kids. I would have to pay higher spousal support, things that just were were unfeasible for me. So I had to stay in the house with her knowing I was leaving. And for it was about 11 months, um, put up with even more daily abuse. How dare I leave my family? How dare I destroy the 
the life we created. Um, and all the while not being able to reconcile why she wanted to keep somebody that was just so, um, you know, inferior for what she felt she needed. Um, really, really hard days. The hardest of those days was when she decided that she would accuse me of trying to push her down the stairs and call the police on me. And, you know, the kids were panicking. Mom called the police. What, what's going to happen? They're going to take you to jail. I said, they're not going to take me to jail. I didn't do anything. Um, there's the moment where you're sitting in the living room of your house explaining to a police officer what happened. They're telling her there's a shelter she can go to. And of course, there's nothing for men, right? That's just the way of the world. In order for me to leave, I had to go pay for my own hotel someplace else. The good news was I had the means to do that. I recognize others don't have a way to do that. Um, that obviously came to more or less an end after I left the, the, the actual house. She finally had signed the papers. We were able to, to move on with the separation and divorce. Um, but, you know, the, the emotional barrier is still there, right? I still have to parent children with this person. Um, and so it becomes something where even though you're gone, you're still subject to the words, you're still subject to the, the criticism. There's not enough distance when you're raising children with somebody um, to to keep you safe. And it's it's about developing a strength within yourself to almost tune it out. It's about learning how to go within. It's learning how to believe more in yourself than what you're hearing from the outside. And as a words of affirmation person, that's probably the hardest lesson I've ever had to learn. Yeah. Um, so that's the, that's the short story. Um, you know, and that gets into, um, you know, Nicole and I meeting on clubhouse and almost immediately we, we sort of realized we had a similar story. We had similar interests and I'll let her talk to some of this, but, uh, really, really interestingly, in one of our very first conversations, we realized we both had the same dream to start the same organization yeah. and just didn't, you know, for me, it was, it was not a right away thing. It, you know, I had a longer term plan in mind, but you know, what do they say? Like God laughs at your plans, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so just th thank you so much for sharing Bobby. Like I can't even imagine what it would be like to be in that situation and not have any supports in place. Um, you know, and the state laws seem like that seems very complicated. And I'm sorry you went through all that. Both of you, you know, going through abuse. It's, you know, I on a calls, we've been talking about stats. That's one in three, but we're three out of three. So maybe the stats are wrong. Maybe it's more than that. And, you know, I think I just want to just sidebar, like for those of you listening, who's like, what's Clubhouse? Like, no, not nightclub, <laughs> not nightclubbing. It, it's a social media network. It's audio only. It was really big. I'll let you on. It was really big during the pandemic. That's how I met Bobby and Bobby became a client and a friend. And that's how Bobby and Nicole met. So I want to just, you know, we now, you know, their backgrounds. And so they teamed up and they are the co-founders of <laughs> the Emerger. Emerger. Oh my God. See my Canadian accents like Emerger. And they're like Emerger. <laughs> I like that about it. Emerger. It's like Hermes. <laughs> so what is this movement? Tell us. What is this movement? Where is it? What is it? 
Yes. So the Emmerich was birthed out of um, my desire to create networks. Um, we're starting here in Missouri, but we're going to expand across the U.S. and hopefully the globe where we're filling in the gaps for care, for um, provisions, for resources that are needed by people coming out of domestic violence situations. Um, When someone is on the brink of deciding whether they're leaving, um, a lot of times there is a bit of chaos surrounding that. It's very hard when you're in a fight or flight um, mindset, cortisol is up and, and everything is just like not knowing how to fire, not knowing the next right step. We want to be an organization that comes alongside those um, with people who have already walked the path, who have already found freedom, found wholeness, found hope and their own peace and um, restoration to themselves and to relationships. So um, we are creating uh, basically a network that unites a lot of the nonprofits that exist currently, uh, utilizes ones that have capacity to take on more people, um, and then also uh, begin building infrastructures that will support those that um to support the gaps of, of things that are needed, which can change from area to area. So that's what we are on the ground building at this moment. I love that. So it's now August, August 2023, in case someone's listening to this in a few years from now. 22. But, oh, hey, sorry, I, 2022. You know, it's so funny. Me and my girlfriends were talking today about like how someone thought it was December 2023. And I was thinking about it. And I've been writing 2019. Like, anyways. we even know what year it is anymore. No, I don't. Okay, so it's it's August 2022 when you're listening to this, and it's going to be cool to see where you're at in 2023 in a year. But you're just launching this month. Mm-hmm. Um, you're currently only available. Like, you have a, a, a house, like a base camp, the headquarters. Yeah. It's located in. Are you open to sharing where you're located? In Lewis County. St. Louis County, St. Louis, and you do have goals to grow, um, you know, but you have to start where you are. And I know there's a big conference at the end of the month where you're officially launching. And I think it's, I think I want to dive in a bit deeper because what you just said was very high level in the sense of like resources and being like helping connect the network of resources. So like if I am fleeing a DV situation, in St. Louis County, mm-hmm. how can you support me? Like, can I come to you at three in the morning? Absolutely. So we are, yes, we're available at, at all hours. Um, we are wanting to um, put place things in place right now that meet everyone on every single level. Obviously, physical safety is paramount. Uh, everything else can kind of be dealt with after that point. So getting people to physical safety, providing um, a network of hotels or um, safe houses, et cetera, yeah. is, is something we have the pulse on in the St. Louis area, you know, at all times. So we can say, you know, very confidently provide that information and and support to get people 
to those places. Um, yeah. So that's just, but that's just one. I mean, unraveling the systems of violence that exist within our society is no, no easy matter. It's very complicated. Um, and we really want to take a whole systems approach to this in offering not only services for physical safety of resources, you know, to provide, um, you know, housing, clothing, food, shelter, whatever it may like whatever's be. needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But also translate that too to emotional and spiritual support. I mean, this when you hurt someone, it's their whole self that is affected. It is body that it's trauma that lives within the body. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I've facilitated uh, classes with um, trauma sensitive yoga you know, to begin releasing trauma that is stored there. Um, we also have a couple other uh, method methodologies that we promote and use for processing uh, emotional and spiritual pain. Um, we're getting, you know, we're talking to psychologists and psychiatrists who can come alongside and support in that as well. So this is such a multifaceted approach that we're taking. Um, I don't think it's more than we can chew. I I think it's really has to be though a a system that's built very securely from the ground up of this is exactly what we offer and this is exactly what we can do. Yes. We're starting small and, you know, putting the framework together and then you can grow. So right now, as we wrap up this conversation, because I feel like we can talk about this for hours, but you're going to get more media interviews. So I think like, let's just put a call out. What is there? What can the listeners do? What can our community do to support you? Well, if you have another podcast that you think they, you know, would be great to share their story and their why on, please reach out to them. All their information is in the show notes. You guys are looking for donations. Financial donations. Point in time, yeah, we're well, we're looking for a number of things, right? A lot of a lot of organizations are looking for money, right? Um, and we're no different. We've poured our own money into getting this going uh, quite substantially. We obviously will need funds to continue it, um, specifically funds to help the people that we want to get out of those safe or those unsafe spaces quickly. Um, but to build the network that Nicole is talking about, we're also going to need partners. Um, the types of services that people will need in these circumstances are really the same everywhere. How those services are instantiated in all of those locations is different. The level of resources available in different locations are different. And the specific needs of every individual is different. So our goal is to connect the pieces that are already there. We like we would like to connect to people in this area that are performing and providing some of those services. So, so partners connecting them together. So yes, not only donations, but also partnerships. So donations, money, clothing, whatever you can do to help support yes. partnerships. Are you an organization that can help these men or women? Yes. All people. Right? People mm-hmm. fleeing a domestic, domestic violence mm-hmm. scenario situation. And do you have an opportunity, a platform for Bobby Kay and Nicole to share their vision? Because like I said, the stat, the U.S. stat is one in three people experience domestic violence. But right now you're watching 100 percent of us. 
or listening, yeah. not watching, watching with your ears. A hundred percent of us, all three of us have had experience with violence, with abuse. Yeah. And what are we doing to support? How are we educating? How are we ensuring people who are leaving those situations that they're safe? We need to talk about this more. And so I'm going to be putting all the information in the show notes. I really want to thank the both of you for coming on Radical Resilience, sharing both of your stories so vulnerably, so raw, so openly. Um, you know, it's beautiful to watch you both turn your pain into purpose. And I look forward to having you back on in earlier than a year, <laughs> but you know, throughout the year for another update, you know, so we can do a check-in and see what other support you need from the community. We have a global listeners from around the world that tune in and together we can all support their vision and their mission. So thank you so much for being yeah. a guest. We appreciate you more than we can express. Oh, thank you. Um, and thank you to everyone for tuning in to another episode of Radical Resilience. You know, it is okay to not be okay. You're not alone. There are resources. There are people out there to help you. Our community is here for you. Remember, you are resilient. You got this. Thank you. That's a wrap for another episode of Radical Resilience. Do you feel inspired by this episode? You can subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player and connect with us to join the conversation at IamResilient.info. Remember, it's okay to not be okay. And you, my friend, are resilient. Radical Resilience is a podcast created by The Resilience Project.